if there's something that movement practices do to you, it just doesn't let you remain at the status quo of what culture wants you to, to do. And it makes you think outside of the box and it makes you, it makes you go after things you didn't think were possible. And I say it to people all the time. Once you do one thing that was impossible and you do it another time and you've done two impossible things, then what can't you do? You know, and it's just the reality. If you achieve something that you never thought you could do, then the sky is the limit. Welcome to This Thing Called Movement, brought to you by Ivolna, hosted by Marie Janicek. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the 47th episode of the This Thing Called Movement podcast, a space where we take time to really explore and excavate all the hidden nuances of movement, not just how it shapes us physically, but especially looking into the undercurrents of how it is affecting and influencing us in our emotional intelligence, in our intellect, and even how we relate to every other aspect of our lives. Today's episode holds so much personal significance for me on multiple levels. First off, it features Matt Bernstein, owner and founder of the ApeCo Movement Collective based in Boulder and Denver, Colorado. Now, this movement facility and community are really unique and one of a kind. They are perhaps best known for their teaching of the Edo Portal method. And ironically, that was actually the reason that I was intimidated to even come to their classes to begin with once I moved back here to Colorado. And at the urging of a dear friend of mine, I finally came to my first class and it has been such an incredibly transformative addition to my day-to-day life. Many of you don't know this about me, but during the pandemic, I significantly lost touch with my relationship to movement in a way I'd never experienced before. And for the first time, I could really understand and relate to the plight of so many people where when you are not moving regularly, you just don't have the motivation to move at all. And very often it's difficult to discern between knowing if you are in fact tired and the messages your body is sending you are of needing rest, of needing recuperation, or if you are just locked into a cycle and the discomfort of moving outside of that norm is what's holding you back from what's actually good for you and what you actually want. And as I started sort of recognizing that I was falling into that latter space myself, I realized that maybe I didn't want to be entirely responsible by myself, for myself, for my movement practice. And at that point, I went ahead and began diving into these classes at the APECO Movement practice and collective. And it was exactly what I needed on so many levels. And what I 
especially enjoy about what Matt's created with this space is the sense of community, the sense of curiosity, creativity, exploration, and play. So I was really excited to have the opportunity to talk with him a little bit more about his own personal movement journey, what led him to opening up the space, and wanting to dive a little deeper into some of these unique characteristics that shape this facility and this community and how he seeks to continue to cultivate them. Another reason why this particular episode feels so special to me is in the course of our conversation, Matt and I got to dive into a few key conversational themes around how movement is such a powerful portal for opening doors within us. And a couple of the most significant ways we explain this phenomenon are through the lens of being able to make the impossible possible. Uh, As you probably heard in the teaser, Matt makes a very important distinction that when you start to discover that your body is actually capable of doing things that you thought were impossible, suddenly the sky is the limit. And we also were able to tie this into being able to open the doors to what's hidden and suppressed or repressed within us, whether that's emotionally, psychologically, any other of those realms, and how once we start moving, we can actually unlock what is hidden within us, and whether movement becomes the medicine we use to restore and nourish ourselves or whether it just provides the gateway to ask for help in other avenues, whether that may be getting therapists, getting counseling, getting practitioners and doctors on our sides to help us, that fundamentally movement is just such an important part of our expansion and how the more we allow ourselves to really open up to this infinite possibility of moving our bodies in all of these unexpected ways, we actually tap into the unlimited possibilities within ourselves. So without further ado, I'm going to let you all revel in the magic of this conversation for yourselves. So go ahead and sit back, relax, and enjoy. Welcome, Matt. It is such a pleasure to be able to have you on with us today for this next episode of This Thing Called Movement. Thanks for having me. That was, I just got to say, so nice to take a moment before we started. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I I find that pause really before doing anything is so valuable. And it's, it's something I'm trying to actively weave in more often in, in between all the little things, whether it's before centering myself to actually come to take class at APCO or before I get into the car or before I switch tasks with work. And it just makes such a big difference to give yourself those few seconds to recenter and regroup. I mean, I feel it. So it was amazing. Thanks for starting it like that. Yeah. So let's kick things off right away. I would love to hear more about your personal journey around movement. How did it begin and how did it lead you into your work with APCO and all the movement stuff you're creating for so many beautiful humans today? So the reality is that I am actually 
was not a physical person at all growing up. I, I guess I shouldn't say I wasn't a physical person at all. I just wasn't good at sports. And so growing up, uh, you know, in our culture, when you're not good at something, you kind of just sit on the bench and watch the other kids who are good. And that was a lot of my childhood. I really didn't take to anything physical until I was in high school. And I met one of my mentors who, uh, his name's David Rockwell, but everyone refers to him as Rocky from my high school. And he was probably oof, 60 when I met him. So now he's, you know, he's around 80 or so. And he ran a leadership and outdoor program as well as he was a history teacher as well. And that working and meeting him and connecting with him uh, was really the first time that I found something physical, whether it was canoeing or hiking or climbing or, you know, anything that he did. He was really that first person for me. I was like, if he taught, you know, gardening, I was in. And that was the first time that I really realized that I was a physical being and that I could connect to, at the time, of course, I had no idea, but could connect to myself in a really genuine way. And I think that was one of the first times in my life where I found some ease was being outside and being physical outside. And through his influence, I attended a, a few courses with Knowles National Outdoor Leadership School, which is up in Lander, Wyoming. I did a 33-day Alaska mountaineering course one summer, which was amazing. Yeah, it was amazing. I was 17. And then the next summer did a rock climbing course up in the Wind River Range in Wyoming, kind of just south of Jackson Hole in that area which I'm actually just really quickly going hiking there in three weeks to the same place eight, 19 years ago. So I'm going to go back to that same area. Wow. And so it was really in high school that I, that I found this physical creature in me. And I went to college at the University of New Hampshire, which kind of has, you know, in a very niche world, kind of one of the best outdoor education programs. And it also happened to be in the kinesiology department, which is the study of the way the body moves. So it was kind of this, I didn't know it again at the time, but it was kind of this perfect storm. From there, a part of graduating was you had to become a wilderness EMT. So it's like a regular EMT, take that course first, and then there's another full course of wilderness on top of it. And fell in love with the emergency medicine side of things. Um, and this was right after nine 11 and I grew up just outside of New York city. And that was a very intense time for my family. This is all in the same time. Uh, my dad worked, my parents grew up in New York. My dad worked, um, with a lot of people who were killed that in that day. And so I ended up at the same time getting into emergency medicine and, and the volunteering at a fire department in college so i was doing the outdoor education thing and the firefighting thing it was really it was really kind of neat and still in that time was outside a lot but i still wouldn't consider myself like a physical person you know i wasn't that interested in what i see as movement now it was mostly just kind of i just wanted to be outside luckily the department chair let me intern at Stowe, Vermont uh, as a ski patroller. And so I moved to Stowe 
spent a winter there, and most of the time just drank beer all day and, and eat all day as well, <laughs> which was kind of this is when things start to kind of shift in my life where I where I lost a little bit of my physicality, actually. Moved to Steamboat Springs in 2007, where I was uh, ski patrolling there as well, and also was a fishing guide at the same time. And the I think like a lot of people in their early 20s, I drank a lot and ate terribly. And even though I was skiing every day in the winter, I still was just not treating my body well. And when it comes down to it, if you're skiing every day and you're doing chairlift access skiing, it's not the most physically demanding thing in the world, you know? No. Um, <laughs> I ended up putting on like 45, 50 pounds, which is... Yeah, which is a lot of weight. Um, This was as I was also training to volunteer for the local fire department there. And I just put on a ton of weight and I sort of felt pretty gross um, in my body. And then from there, I ended up after like applying six times, got a job working for the fire department full time, which is like an epic career. It's an amazing job. Great hours camaraderie you help people you get to ride on the big red fire truck like it's so fun so amazing and one day i kind of woke up there and was just like oh my god i'm fat and useless and people are calling me in their worst day of their life like everyone remembers the day they call 911 and when you're working in that job it's all day like sometimes we're running you know, 15 calls in 24 hours. I know nowadays it's much, they're running like sometimes 25 calls in 24 hours up there. And I had this realization that I cannot be physically inept when people require me and my physicality and my cognition and all of these things. And that was a huge wake up call to me. And that was kind of the beginning of what I would say, like my modern movement journey, which started with like simple stuff. Like I was doing P90X. You remember that stuff? Oh, yeah, I remember. I, I mean, and, and what was great was I actually I like I, I started to lose weight and I started to feel better in my body. And then from there, I got into CrossFit. There was a CrossFit gym there and I fell in love with it. And I kind of fell in love with the fact that I was able to, like, it was nice to start to look better. It was nice to feel better. We would train together all the people on the shift. And it was like, you know, there'd be fun moments where like you were carrying a patient. You were like, oh, like we could just like push press them, you know, like, <laughs> like all these things would come up that you're like, okay, so cool. This is translating to my, to what I'm doing in a career. And I just like fell in love with the physical. And I ended up, um, there was kind of like this interesting three things that happened was my dog, actually, okay, I got a concussion at work, which I don't, I've talked a little bit about, but it's an interesting one. I don't remember like 24 hours of my life. So I got, we had, I think we had, got the fire truck stuck in the snow. I don't really remember, but I remember we were at the downtown fire station in Steamboat and my neighbor who was on the shift with me 
dropped like this super, it's called a hard suction hose. So it's like a five inch diameter coupling, metal coupling. And he dropped it on my head accidentally, obviously. And I just sort of like, didn't seem like a huge deal, but I literally woke up in the supermarket at work. And I remember saying to my lieutenant, like, hey, I, something's wrong. And so I had this concussion. My parents happened to be out there because they came to visit just like because I needed some support. My dog got hit by a car and killed like the next day. And I just sort of was in this crazy funk and I ended up just deciding to leave and go back to the East Coast, which in hindsight was an amazing decision. But still to this day, to leave that career, it still is heavy. And I've had to actually do a lot of work with feeling like I abandoned the people on my on my shift and all of this stuff. And so I moved back to New York and was able to get really involved in the CrossFit world. And I love teaching and I TA'd a lot of classes in college and I love teaching. It just sort of is something that comes somewhat naturally to me. Like I just, it just, it's one of the things that comes naturally. And I got really involved in CrossFit and there was a great gym that was right near my apartment in Brooklyn. And I just went head in, ended up working with them, teaching at the gym ended up teaching for CrossFit headquarters for the gymnastics seminars. And then I had this realization. I started to feel like there was things missing. Like all of, all of what we were teaching in CrossFit, all of the, the, the cognitive side of it, the, the conceptual side of it was clear, but we weren't actually doing that in the classes. So we would talk about coordination. We would talk about accuracy, agility, timing, all of this stuff. But in reality, all we cared about was how much could you do in how much time. And somebody sent me a video of a veto. And instantly it was like, this is what I've been missing. And that was, and that was 10 years ago. And I immediately couldn't do CrossFit anymore. I had to just go and do this movement thing. I went and spent a week with Ido in Berlin and I did online coaching and I just, it just like, it blew up my whole world in a great way, but also in like a, wow, there's so much more out there kind of way. Yeah, and that's that then that's how I got into the movement space, you know, and ended up was in New York a couple more years, just obsessed, couldn't teach CrossFit anymore, but still worked out of the gym, still had a good relationship with them, worked with my clients, taught some classes, and then my wife and I just wanted to get out of New York because it wasn't serving us anymore. We decided to come back here to Colorado. She went to CU and Boulder seemed like a really easy place to land. It was the only place we wanted to live. And yeah, and then I'll tell you quickly how we started the gym and then started. um, Yes, tell me how we started the gym. So I was teaching at one of the CrossFit gyms here, but I didn't want to teach. I kind of wanted some time. Like in New York, as you know, it just is brutal. 
Like I helped open a gym on the Upper East Side. I worked at Lululemon. I worked at the CrossFit gym. You're like running around the subway. It's crazy. Like yes, yes, you have cash falling out of your pocket a hundred percent. But you also like it is intense. And I, so we moved here and I just wanted to train. I just wanted to be outside. I just wanted to be with my wife. I started teaching a few classes at the CrossFit gym here because people just kept asking, like, I want to learn this stuff. And I was teaching classes and they were going really well. And one day my brother, who is an artist and who I don't think has spent more than a dollar in his life on anything, like literally just does his work and hides money under his bed. Alex, I'm sorry to tell everyone this, but he was, he called me one day about making an investment. He was like, I think I'm going to actually like invest some money and put $50,000 with this. And you know, some, I don't know, some kind of strange investment that either he was going to lose it all or make a lot of money. I said, why don't you give me the $50,000 and I'll start a gym. (gasps) And we did it. And yeah, and we did it. And, and we, before we opened the gym, I was training out of Apex, the parkour gym that is now in Louisville. They used to be here. We had mm-hmm. 6 a.m. classes in the winter where there was no heat. We even did like a New Year's class. Wow. Everyone showed up six in the morning. Um, and we had this crew of like 10, 15 people that came with me from the CrossFit gym. And some of them are still around, which is so amazing. And we just started. And I honestly had no idea what to expect. I had no idea what I was doing. I was completely out of my element when it came to being a boss, running a gym. I had no idea how to do anything. Never had any experience being in a leadership role before. I was always like a grunt in the fire department or ski patrol. Like, never had, I had no idea. Didn't even know that I needed to know any of that stuff. <laughs> yeah and so that's and that's how we started that was february in 2016 and uh, now mm. we're five plus years in and we opened our second gym this summer and uh yeah and that's that's kind of how i got here wow what a crazy ride i'm i'm thinking about so many pieces of that namely I think that switch for you that you were recognizing within the CrossFit methodology and practice, you know, seeing that the talk didn't necessarily match the walk. And I think that's such an incredibly astute observation, especially for somebody like you mentioned your history, you hadn't necessarily been formally trained in the movement space. You were just like intrigued and excited. And I'm curious to learn more about from your experience and from your lens, because this is something that's very key at APECO, is that you guys bring in all these different components of what a healthy, diverse, and rich movement practice looks like. And yes, it brings in strength training, uh, which you most people are familiar with in some way, shape, or form, but it also brings in all these other things, you know, like patterning, locomotion, being able to work on these games, both in terms of coordination, rhythm, and timing. And I'm curious to learn more about how you 
chose to actually shape the material within Apeco based off of that experience transitioning from CrossFit into more of the Edo Portal methodology and the other systems that you bring in to Apeco today. Yeah, and I think this is this is the this is the big question that I I was up thinking about this last night. I guess my big mission is to spread this to to any, anyone who's interested. Knowing that people come from all different backgrounds. We have some people who are dancers who have never lifted a weight in their life. And we have CrossFitters who have never thought about dancing a day in their life. And how do I meet those people where they're at? And how do I do it in a gentle enough way where it feels welcoming? And how do I also do it in a way that feels like they're actually able to take something from it? And I think that when it comes to the programming, that's my attempt is not to meet everybody all the time, but to present some form of, let's say like, let's keep it very simple. Let's say the programming is leg strength and we'll do some kind of partner game and we'll do some kind of locomotion. Everybody is there where they are. There's nothing we can change about that. And that's like, I like this concept of I, meaning me, I plus one. And that everyone has a growth potential in that session. And how is it possible for me to meet them and to give them just enough where there's some stress, but not enough where there's too much? And the reality is the programming could be perfect and it could be delivered in a way that's completely wrong. And programming is an important part of it, but I think the real, the real piece of the puzzle that I think we can miss sometimes is the relational aspect of it. And how is it possible for me to, like with you, you're a different specimen, like, right? You, you, not everyone comes in with the ability to move like you. And so how can I give you something to chew on just like i can give someone who's a beginner who's never moved in their life how can i give you the same amount to chew on that's going to not overwhelm and also not going to bore and it's so i don't think it's so much about the material as much as just meeting people where they're at and for you maybe it's not talking about okay we're going to aim there's some rhythm and timing and like what what am i taking from this for a new person i have to say you know, we're not just playing this game. I'm actually trying to help you develop spatial management and distance management and timing and hand-eye coordination. And for you, it's a little bit more like, how can we, how can we, you know those things already. How can we push it so you feel those things or feel that you're missing those things? And I think a big part of programming is just meeting your students or meeting your partner where they're at. I love how you said that the programming can be perfect, but if it is not administered or shared through the correct way or the correct means or an ideal means for that person, that relational component is actually the important piece, less so what you're doing and more how it's being transmitted. And that is something I think is so evident in not just your classes when you're teaching, but really in every single instructor that holds space for people at APECO. And I think that's such an important 
recognition is is it's not so much what you do, it's how it's done. And your relationship to the material will dictate your experience of it, your ability to really assimilate and understand it, to be inspired by it, to be challenged by it, that right amount, because it is a very narrow edge, challenging somebody, no matter what level they're on, and and knowing how to find that sweet spot where, where they can have that sort of like push to effort through it without feeling completely overwhelmed or inadequate. And I think that that comes from our, and this is something Ido taught me that I didn't know until I started working with him. In the CrossFit world, it was all about how many weekend seminars had you taken. And then you come back on Monday and you teach that, you teach it. You teach what you learned that weekend. And the reality is, if I don't have a relationship with going through the struggle, going through the success of what I've learned over that weekend, if I can't embody that, then how am I actually supposed to be with the students? If I'm on, if I'm on the same thing, if we're learning it together, which don't get me wrong, I do that plenty where we're learning at the same time, but I try for the most part, not to let that happen because I want to know what are people going to run up against? What are people going to come up against? What is going to be the struggle? And if I know that in my body and I can feel it, for me, I know we're a little woo-woo. I don't know about the listeners, but like I'm an, we're gonna go I'm an, I'm an empath for sure, which I only learned recently. It's very easy for me to then relate and to see what people are going through. And when I'm teaching, a lot of times I might step back, but I'm completely in it with the students. And I teach a lot of my classes based on how it feels. Like I ride the wave of the energy in the room a lot. And I think that if you're teaching something, you have to have gone through the same struggle that you're going to put your students through. It doesn't matter what it is. You know, something that, I think about a lot is how we can facilitate better sustainability with movement practices. Uh, And this is a personal obsession of mine, especially having been a professional in the fitness space, is seeing how that sustainability is sort of the most challenging part for most people. And that's especially considering that most of the time people are chasing after practices that are going to get them quick results within a short period of time and a lot of strenuous effort, which is not necessarily sustainable. It's not even that healthy for your body, even if you may get those aesthetic changes that you are hoping to see. And something that I really feel is embedded within these practices here that you guys teach is, is the sense of sustainability and longevity within the practice, right? Because you're chipping away at the movement vortex from so many different angles. And you are looking at it from strength. You're looking at it from mobility. You're looking at it from, you know, being able to create movement patterns and sequences. And then, you know, this rhythm, coordination, and timing. And and because the teaching is so relational, I feel that students get to have this really close connection with their bodies and with themselves, where they can begin to understand more about 
what is inherently guiding them towards movement because it's something so much deeper than I just want, you know, six pack abs or like, you know, to be at this percentage body fat. It is this feeling of wanting to be with your body and be alive and feel accomplished and in awe of yourself when you can overcome a challenge and then successfully do a movement, whether it's a simple movement or a pinnacle movement. And I'm curious how you guys think about these ideas of sustainability and longevity within what you're cultivating at APECO. I've recently been thinking that everyone who walks through the door is a new student. I was, I'm going to say to them something along the lines of, if you can give me two years of your time, then you can have the rest of your life. And I don't, and I just mean <laughs> that in a way of if, if I can, if people could commit two years of their life to putting in enough effort to get to know their body and to get to find all of these qualities that they can have, then from there we can, we can develop enough tools where somebody can go and can, let's say, go into a very physical practice like a martial arts practice or a dance practice that's very demanding and have tools where they can not only learn differently so it's not maybe so stressful because they can see things differently and pick things up a little bit quicker but also then when something happens in their body then they'll have a tool to fix it and i don't mean a physical tool i mean tools to fix their body and hopefully in the two years this is a, again an imaginary person in those two years i think we will develop enough qualities in their tissue in their joints in their spine and their hips where they are somebody who will be able to stay in the practice for a long time or in physical practices for a long time and that longevity is the name of the game and even today you know it's i it's my morning off i was gonna go train i never don't train i try you know like it happens i'm tired today i'm tired you know, I have kids, like things come up, I'm tired. And I decided, you know, like, it's okay. I know I can take I can take the morning off and I can read a book and it's great for me. And because of the practice that I have and the fact that I know I'm going to do this my entire life, I'm not in it for a quick fix because the quick fix never worked for me. Uh, the quick fix never worked. And the P90X of 90, give me 90 days. And the reality is it's just not true. And I'm not saying that what people are doing is, is, is wrong. It's just that culturally we have this thing where we need it now. And there's something about the long game that feels really good to me. And there's something about the long game that feels, I think, really good to the students and the relationships that we've been able to build. Those That comes from going through things together. It comes from going through difficult training sessions and breakups and moving out of your, you know, getting kicked out of your sublease and all of these things that come up and that this movement thing, because you develop such intense relationships with people, it bleeds into the rest of your life. And it's not about what I'm going to do next month. I think about what am I going to do in five years when my sons start coming to class and what am I, what's it going to be like in 20 years 
when I'm 57? And how is my body going to be different then? Because I will still be teaching. And what's it going to look like? And if I can, if I think if people could look at it from a two year commitment, the same way you look at getting, you could go to get an associate's degree in two years and people are like, oh, that's, I can sign up for that. But there's some mm-hmm. kind of crazy disconnect that we have that doesn't really allow for us to commit two years to our bodies for the lay person, somebody like me, who was not a yeah. physical person. So what would it be like for people to commit two years to coming three days a week to class? And and what a difference in their life if they could commit to doing that. And I think just to kind of actually answer your question, longevity comes from not doing the same thing over and over again. And uh, one thing that I think we found in the CrossFit world was because we are working maybe on the same 15, 20 movements, very quickly you can burn out that those movements and it spreads from there, those joints, those whatever it is. And I think in a, in a generalist movement practice where we're looking at the dance and expressive world, we're looking at the environmental practice, which is moving your body in space. So parkour, locomotion, hand balancing, object manipulation tasks, the internal practice, breath work, somatic, and the tactical sport and martial arts element it doesn't leave a lot of opportunity for you to number one, get bored. And number two, Mm -hmm. it doesn't leave you a lot of opportunity to get hurt with those chronic things because we try to not allow for our bodies to go so far in one direction where it's going to rear its ugly head. I did a lot of jujitsu for about four years and I love jujitsu and I'm going back next week for the first time since, uh, you know, COVID happened and that stuff breaks you. It breaks. And, you know, I posted a spine video today and I was giggling to myself, uh, actually almost writing it to my former training partners about how I know you think this is weird, but what's weird to me is that you have back pain and you don't do anything about it. And I think that if we have these, this holistic approach and longevity is a part of it, and you have that vision of two years, five years, 10 years, the rest of my life, then there's no rush and you will have the same results of doing any other physical practice, but also get much more than just those, those results. And I mean, we talk, we're talking about the six pack, the, you know, yeah. Mm-hmm. I love what you said about the two years and that disconnect, how anything else we invest our time and energy and money into, we have an awareness that there's like a process underway that takes a long time. I mean, look at how much people spend on education in this country, specifically the university system. You know, you're looking at to like get into a good university. It's anywhere between, you know, 20K to like 70k a year maybe even more now and you're willing to go into debt to do that for those four years and yet when it comes to our bodies we're so quick to just like six weeks right 12 weeks three months and 
And we need to be putting that same sort of educational student mastery mindset into how we communicate with our bodies. And it's actually kind of mind-blowing that we don't. When your body is your vessel, it is not just this thing that holds your brain. It is how your brain functions. We cannot even begin to formally understand like where the mind ends and where the body begins. And yet we approach it that way. And then we're surprised when we're negotiating even mental disorders and diseases, whether we're negotiating anxiety, stress, depression. And a huge part of that, I think, is as a society, we have just left our bodies behind and we haven't honored them with the same sort of reverence and appreciation that we honor our intellect our analysis, our our ability to be accomplished in our careers. And yet, if we don't take care of this part of ourselves, we are only showing up at a percentage of our maximum potential. And it goes so much further than, than just the aesthetics of how our body looks. But when we engage in movement practices more thoroughly, I, and I love that you keep referring to like this several year process. I think it's an important one for people to consider. Like, what if you gave yourself two to five years to actually commit time to understanding your body, to really understanding this relationship? What could it give you? And it'll give you so much more than just the physical changes. It'll change how you think. It'll change how you relate to people. It'll change your IQ, your EQ, all these factors that people really care about and chase uh, changes in through an intellectual standpoint can also be changed through the body. And by leaving the body behind, we're missing probably the most foundational component to our health and well-being across the board. We've lost two students to Harvard this year. Like, and I was talking with one of my students who came with me when we first started, she got into, just got into Denver health emergency department for her residency. They take 10 people out of the country. And she texted me and she was like, there's no way that no way in hell I would have ever gotten into med school, let alone this very prestigious ED, if it weren't for the work that we did together. And I think that it's so clear in my, I'll talk from my experience that if I went back to school now, I was like a C minus student. Because again, if you're not good at things, you just stay not good at them as opposed to being told that it's okay to fail and that you will get better if you continue to fail. Right? You know this, you know the study that the difference between I don't know what country in Asia, but American students in one country in Asia, 100 students, they gave them the same math problem. They gave them an hour to solve it. 97% of the, or 97 of the American kids within five minutes just stopped because they're like, I, I, I can't do this. And 97% of the kids from this Asian country just stuck with it the whole time and did their best. And I think that for me, that's 100% how school was for me. I was never told it's okay to be bad. Let's just continue to work on this and you will find a way. It was just kind of like, oh, I'm bad. Same, same thing with sports. If I went back to school now because of what I've done in my body and how that's changed my brain, 
as opposed to the way that we all think in America or Western mm -hmm. culture, that the brain is the most important thing in order to get more cognition. And in reality, if I went back to school right now, I know I would get a fucking A plus, excuse my language, in every class. Without a doubt, A plus, 4.0, or whatever. I don't even, can you, I think you can go higher than 4.0. Yeah, I just I think never there's do. some 5.0 coursework. <laughs> like, I would 100% get an A plus in every class. No doubt about it. Because there's no way that I would, number one, I just could think I can figure stuff out now and I can learn now. And number two is there's no way that I wouldn't go get the extra help, spend time with the teacher, get a tutor, and take everything I could from that class or those classes. And it's so obvious to me, and it's so obvious to all of our students. I love when people email me and say, hey, I have to cancel my membership. I finally got that job that I wanted. It's just in San Francisco or whatever it is. Oh, yeah. You know, and like, I love that. I, do I, I don't like losing students, but like, if there's something that the movement practices do to you, it just doesn't let you remain at the status quo of what culture wants you to, to do. And yeah. it makes you think outside of the box and it makes you, it makes you go after things you didn't think were possible. And I say it to people all the time. Once you do one thing that was impossible and you do it another time and you've done two impossible things, then what cannot, what cannot, what can't you do? What cannot yeah. you do? <laughs> You know, and it's, uh, and it's just the reality. Like if it's juggling, maybe for you, it's juggling, right? If it's, I don't care what it is, but if you achieve something that you never thought you could do, then the sky is the limit. And when you're around other people who are doing that all the time and you just see it happening and happening, then everyone starts doing it. And then there's a group of people and then it's exponential. And it's just the learning just shoots through the roof. And uh, yeah, it's special. And I think you, I think you probably see it in, in some dance groups or dance schools. You probably see it in some martial arts schools. And you get into this thing where everyone is just crushing it. And it just builds and it builds and it builds. And you can take regular people and put them into that scenario. And if they, if they buy into themselves a little bit, then they can hop right on the same train and it doesn't have to be you don't have to be a spe you don't have to be special you just have to be willing something that feels so important for me is is helping people understand that the transformative effects i've experienced throughout my life in movement are not just because of my dance career it was the movement practice itself and the only reason dance was the thing that shaped me in that way was because dance in comparison to most modalities has a lot more diversity. It has a lot more creativity and ingenuity and exploration. And it was the exploration part that particularly had me hooked. And it was also the emotive aspect of it that had me hooked. I was always a very physical kid. I, I loved climbing trees. I would go rollerblading and ice skating. I learned how to play hockey with my dad, you know, biking, hiking. I, I, I just loved being in my body. But I, I know what allowed me to be, you know, the brilliant kid I was because I was an accelerated 
academic programs all the way up until college. I even tested out of like needing to take math in college because I was so ahead of the curve. And that was largely due to how invested I was in my movement practice all throughout that time growing up. I was doing 30, 40 hours of training a week, and I had this extreme course load, which most kids in this in this program in International Baccalaureate, they full-time did school. They didn't have extracurriculars. They did the stuff you know, that they could put on their college applications to make them well-rounded for the Ivy Leagues, but nobody was doing what I was doing. And I know I was 10 times more efficient. I was so much better with time management. I could get things done so much quicker. And I was also a lot more emotionally balanced as a result, even though it was overwhelming and stressful at times. And so I love that you're sharing these stories of what the students at APECO are attaining just through this practice that inherently has so much diversity baked in that is created from the standpoint of how can we continue to expand one another's perception of what we are capable of physically? How can we push that edge in that increment in this arena, in this arena, whether it is the strength or the mobility or the coordination? And the more you continue to do that, and the more you continue to discover what you're capable of, you are actually tapping into so much hidden potential of you as a human being, holistically. And that's, as I've evolved, that's kind of the thing for me. Like, how am I evolving as a human being? Go, just, to, just to touch on what you were saying about your experience in childhood, I am so excited to see what my children are going to achieve in their life. Like, they're dangerous people. Like, in the <laughs> sense, they're three and five, and they're going to be kids who I know can do whatever they want in life whatever they want. And I, and I want them to do whatever. I don't mm. care what they do. And I mean, dangerous in the way of like, they are going to be able to choose a direction and they're going to be able to just do whatever they want. And part of that, just like you said, was I'm right now, I was talking to a friend about this. Not everyone can start their child, their child on third base when it comes to setting them up financially, right? Most of us cannot do that. But as a parent, you can do your best, and this is all I ask, is your best to set them up emotionally and relationally on third base. Because you don't have to be a perfect parent. All you have to do is try. And I think that that's from what I get from a lot of things I'm reading. That that sounded like Donald Trump there. From a lot of things I'm reading. But anyways, from a lot of books I'm reading on childhood and Gabor Mate and all these people who are really, really in it, as long as you're trying and you're putting in the effort and it's obvious, your kids and also students, friends know that it's genuine. And so what's it like to try to set your kids up physically, emotionally, relationally on third base? What's it like to set my students up the same way? Because people walk through the door, we have students that, that have a lot of difficulty around pe- a lot of people being in the room, a lot of noise, people have sensory issues, people have their traumas, people have whatever. And how is it possible for me to relate with to 25 people in a class? And part of that is just me showing up in a genuine way and 
I think that's the best I can do. And I think people know that you and me and people out there are doing the best we can do. And I, so going back to it, I'm just excited to see what I know my students are doing it. And I'm so excited to see what my children are going to do. I'm not, oh, I don't yeah. want to wish away the time, but I like, I can't wait to see raising physical children and raising emotional, emotionally, I don't know, children with emotional range. Yeah. You know, like I can't wait, you know, it's like when they freak out when they have a meltdown I have a video. I didn't post it. I don't want to post it. I just have it for myself. My son just was having a meltdown the other day. And for like 10 minutes, you know, just being with it and not trying to calm him down and not trying to do anything with it except for just let him do his thing. And that's what we need. And that's the emotional, we'll say like the movement, the release that most of us probably didn't get as kids. Hopefully people did. But for me, you know, like movement is one of the ways that I can, I can have that or I can regain that. I can regain my the things that maybe I didn't get as a kid or things that, not that my parents weren't doing the best they could do, but sometimes you're like, you don't want your kids to cry and it's scary and it's hard. And I, and I, if I had to guess, a lot of parents don't let their kids cry. At the toy store the other day, my kid threw a fit and I'm sitting there going, wow, all these parents think I must be spo spoiling my kids all the time. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to let my kid throw a fit because I don't care about what other people perceive of me. And I'm going to let my kid cry because he's five. And that's what he needed yeah. to do. Well, you know, I, I say this almost all the time here in episodes, but movement was my saving grace because I wasn't allowed to be emotionally expressive as a child. I mean, my parents, I love them. They're Eastern European. They also weren't allowed to express emotions. And I know they did so much better with me than their parents did with them. But, I, you know, I remember getting screamed at every time I was crying. And I had all the feels. Like, I'm very empathic. Like, I feel most people's emotions stronger than they feel them. And then I have my own at the same time. And this is why, you know, I like dance was everything to me. I, I was unwilling to give it up for any reason, despite the bullying, the psychological trauma that I went through in those scenarios with all that strange brainwashing and all the weird idiosyncrasies of that environment. But despite all that, Dance was the place I could actually alchemize the emotions I was going through. It was a space for me to be with them. I could dance and and let my rage spill through my body. I could dance and let myself cry the whole time on the floor. And knowing that about this practice with movement and being able to physicalize what was happening within me mentally and emotionally, it it was so powerful and so profound. And it was a huge piece of me learning just how powerful I was as an individual to be able to regain a sense of control and stewardship in my life. And it's a huge part of why I was able to always go after the things I cared about. It was a huge part of inspiring me to do what felt right to me, even if people didn't understand, you know, to, to do, to take that leap even if everyone else thought it was crazy because I had this connection with myself that was teaching me I was capable of dealing with anything that came across 
And no matter how challenging something felt emotionally too, I had tools to be able to negotiate that as well. I mean, that's it. And that's, I think why these practices are so important. Just hearing you feel empath to empath. It was like, uh, it's, it's so be- it's so beautiful to be able to feel that you actually could release that. And, you know, it, uh, what we do can be, of course, emotionally, it's emotional. It's not the driver, right? Like I know we have better, I would say we have better tools in our arsenal as humans, like ecstatic experiences, that kind of thing, I think are, can be better for those but it is so interesting to see that even something simple that i don't think is going to be emotional for somebody in the facility can be huge i remember the first time i ever had somebody cry when they were hanging hanging from the bar just you know hands on the bar and this was before i was doing a lot of my own internal work and i remember kind of saying to myself like oh my god how how could people feel so much from Mm. just hanging and I think that was because I was, uh, I grew up in the East Coast, in suburbia, Connecticut. And you're not supposed to, especially, I'm not the first person to say this at all, especially as a, as a man, a male, you're not supposed to feel that shit. You feel two things, anger, and every once in a while, some joy. But yeah. for the most part, it's like, that's it. And mm. think about having a dance practice. Uh, number one, it, I wish it on kids who grew up in the county. I grew up in Fairfield County, Connecticut, which is like this suburbia, New York, rich place, right? Mm. That would be a great place to open up a movement school for yeah. teenage, teenagers, right? Yeah. Because they're just, how many dance school? There's probably the average income of that place is probably a million dollars a household, even in the like you're just throughout. It's crazy. Even the poorer places are still have money. How Mm. many dance schools do you think there are that are not just ballet? Mm. How many, how many schools do you think there are there? Like what a great place to like break the rigidity, put a dance school in there. This contemporary school. Even it's just like, it's so sad it made me who I am, but it's so sad to feel that for so many years, it just wasn't a part of me. Yeah. And, and again, thank God that I am who I, I am who I am because of all of that. But like, I never had that. And I don't mm. wish that on anybody. And I know a lot of my friends growing up have, still don't have it. Mm. And, and, and it's movement that allowed for me to feel okay to go and inside Mm. yeah Yeah, i don't know it's 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 a lot well this actually brings me into another arena so perfectly that i wanted to go into and we're already sort of circling the drain around this which is through your professional and personal experience what are the ways in which you see movement influencing us on a psychological, a psychosomatic level? How does it shape us emotionally? How does it relate in relationship to negotiating trauma? I think what happens is you get to a 
I'll speak from my experience and then probably the experience of like 50 of our students. I think we all have a very similar thing. You start to move. You start to realize that there are a lot more possibilities in your life because you realized you only were moving in one plane. And then you discover there's more than one plane. And you hit a wall and something gets stirred up where you, you realize that there's something that you haven't been addressing. And what I mean this is let's just keep it really simple. This The first time you ever, for me, I never did a backbend, an arch. Never arched in my life until I took maybe my first yoga class like in Brooklyn and never did a backbend, you know? And then you realize there's a whole world behind you. And then you start to realize, okay, I want to get better at this thing. And then you start to get better at it. And you start to realize, okay, oh my, I have to fix my shoulders. Oh, my legs. And you, you start to go deeper and deeper. And then you get excited and you go into another world of, let's say, sport world. And you realize, ooh, if I could communicate with the people on my team better, I could be better at this thing. And then what seems to happen is you hit a wall, like some kind of emotional wall and, and stuff from the past starts to come up for whatever reason. And I don't know what it is. And then you realize, okay, I need some help in this part of my life. The movement practice isn't fixing everything. And that there's a whole other side that doing that the patterns, even in my movement practice, that maybe I'm doing the same patterns in my, let's say when I'm dancing and I start to get emotional, even there I get emotional, I do the same pattern that I do. And then it becomes another feedback loop. And then you start to realize you need help and you need, you need an internal guide. You need somebody who's a therapist. You need a, a breathing teacher, whatever it is, you need to find somebody who can help you out in that world. And I don't do that, even though we are a place that supports that and run right next to that path. We'll call this the therapeutic path. I don't do that. That's not what I do for a living. I'm a movement teacher. And we all ran into this thing, and then it hits you like, a million pounds in the face and you realize, holy shit, I need to get some help. And that happened to me and I didn't know what it was. I had no idea what was going on. All I knew was I was, my movement practice was going great. I was doing all the great things, but something inside of me kept saying, there's more here to unpack and you need to go in there. And I had weeks where I would be really sad and really uncomfortable and I didn't really know what it was. Yeah. And, and then I got help. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's a lot like thinking back to those conversations I had with people and we're going through similar stuff. It's a lot. And some of those people never got help. And, and thankfully I'm getting help, you know, and it's night and day. Yeah. I love how you made the distinguishing point of how, you know, as you're moving, all these possibilities start to get unlocked, but then 
all this old patterning gets unlocked too. And there's something about how movement starts to open you up to see so much more that then you have the capacity to see what has previously been hidden within self. And there is a time and a place when you are able to meet that. And then there's a time and place when you need support to be able to engage with that. And what movement does help is it helps us start to just negotiate part of this path, part of this transition. And it can be an incredible guide and an aid and a facilitator in terms of getting us to where we need to go. So it may not always directly be the medicine and the thing we need, but it can always act as the support system to help guide us in the next direction or towards the next thing, towards the next phase of help and expansion that a deep part of us has been wanting and seeking. And to me, in let's say in the last 15 years of really where I feel like I've come into my being who I truly am, movement is the one is the one constant. And just like you said, movement is what allows for me to ask for help. If it weren't for my movement practice, I would have never been able to ask for the help I needed in my emotional realm. And as I progress with my my internal landscape, my movement practice explodes. And as I progress in my movement practice, my emotional and internal landscape also flourishes or explodes. And when I have bad days, I know that just, it's a great, it's a, they are great analogies for mm. one another. I'm working right now with two, ther- two therapists. And one of them, yeah, one of them who doesn't train, but he know you know, he, played high school football or something like that. So he knows what weightlifting is. We were talking about regulation and how my capacity to stay regulated has gotten much bigger. And it was so cute. He said to me, it's, it's no different than lifting. You can slowly put more weight on. You can take more rest. And over time, you start to just be able to know Oh, you know what? 46 kilos is too much for me today. 45 is where I need to be. And you just you just start to be things get more subtle. And and they're they're just great analogies for one another. And relationships are great analogies for all of this. And it's they're all this it's they're all just different containers for for exploring yourself and exploring your surroundings and exploring your friendships and yeah, they're all they're they're the, they're literally the same, but it is but it is also really important to know that they are they can be great analogies, but I do also think that they they should be for the most eh, not for the most part for me, it feels like separate or two train tracks running next to each other. It feels nice for me to have some separation between the two. And then allow for them to cross over when it feels appropriate and then allow for them to kind of come back to their own tracks. Because I do find myself sometimes if I want to be emo- an, an emotional, but I'm teaching and I'm teaching back <laughs> squats, 
I can't necessarily be that person. So I have to know when to flip that switch. And it is kind of this thing where I'm noticing, I notice it now in a lot of people where I'm like, ooh, wrong switch. Wait, 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 wrong, wait, wrong message, wrong time. You know? Um, and not because not everything, I have, I have to do this with my friends who are therapists. I have to say to them like, hey, let's not do therapy right now. Let's just hang out. You know what I mean? Like not everything has to be perfect all the time. We could just sit and like, we could just sit and look at the leaves and not comment on how it feels <laughs> so good. Like it could yeah. feel good, yeah. you know? And you Yeah. Know. I mean, one thought that came to mind as you were speaking there, like anytime we expand our awareness of any aspect of ourselves, it is always going to be influencing all other parts. And I think for me, this has been my greatest frustration in the fitness uh, profession is that people are inherently dumbing down the true power and potential of movement and undermining just how much it is shaping us. Because while it may not necessarily always be a direct change that's underway, anytime you're expanding a part of yourself, it is influencing everything else. And when we have that awareness, it actually empowers us to show up with way more intention and way more honesty and integrity with what we're doing. And in my experience, the more I've been able to layer that appreciation and integrity into my movement practice, it completely changes the tone of how I'm in it. And it also changes the tone for so many other things. In fact, now the stage I'm at in my life, I'm learning how to take my lessons that I know from movement and apply them in other areas, like building a business. <laughs> and, and this has been one of the hardest places for me to, to bring that same sense of levity and creativity and fun and exploration and that, that willingness to fail forward uh, has been in this process of, of trying to build this business, Evolna. And as I'm getting back into sort of my rhythm with movement, I'm being reminded of everything it taught me in terms of like just these principal life lessons of, of how things work and how to be in process and how to be in the moment and how to be imperfect and to enjoy that. And I've been able to start weaving it back in and it's completely changing how I'm showing up within that is changing my experience of it. So it is becoming more fun. It is becoming more playful and I'm not putting as much pressure on myself. You know, I was thinking back to New York and I was thinking back to a gym I worked in on the Upper East Side. And I was just saying to myself, there were so many times when I actually, I felt like I was doing the best I could for those people in the like regular fitness world because that's where I was. And one thing I will say about the fitness world is if that's, for me, the first time I did CrossFit, it blew my mind, blew my mind. And that's where I was as a human being. And that's great. And the first time I did some fitness stuff and TRX stuff, it's all like, it's, it's fun and it's helping people. I will argue that it's the, just so we have a little bit of, we'll argue, <laughs> we'll point some fingers. The folk, the folks who are who are evolving, and know that what they're teaching is dumbed down, 
and not the best thing for their clients or their students, that's frustrating to me. That's frustrating to me. If you're a newer trainer and it's the best you're doing, great. And you're doing and you're still blowing people's minds by showing them how to do a back squat and that's what you know how to do, amazing. Like you're still helping people. But I know for a fact that there are a lot of people who are still teaching or coaching or whatever it is, and they know that they can do better. And they, for some reason, whether it's money or whether it's Instagram influence, I don't know, whatever it is, that they won't take the leap. They won't fail forward. And they don't have, they don't have, I don't know why they're not doing it, except for the fact that it's fucking scary. And it's really scary. And sometimes I feel a little bit like I'm on an island and running a business, a movement business, is not nearly as lucrative as doing it a way where I know I could make more money. Doing it the right way is not the way that is always going to make me more money. If I change two things about the facility, I don't even like calling it a gym, we could make two times as much money, but I refuse to do it. Refuse to do it. And I think that there's a lot of people in the fitness world who are stuck in their ways and are not doing the best by their clients. And I think what you and I are doing, which is this generalist outlook that bleeds into other parts of people's lives, that helps them develop emotionally, physically. I think that what we're doing should be the norm and what they're doing <laughs> should be weird. And, and I, and I, and it frustrates, it frustrates me. It really frustrates me. I can me. totally relate. But I will also say is that anytime somebody is innovating in the space, nobody around them understands. And I think you only see in history later, the true influence and power that those people had. And I will say as one of your students myself, I am so happy you have not made those changes just to become more lucrative. I will say that the way you've cultivated the community and space gives me so much life and that is priceless. And I know it is priceless for so many others. And that has an incredible ripple effect, whether you will see the effects of that in your lifetime, and I think there's a good chance of that, or not. And in which case, there's a paving of the way for a new era. And and so that's something that I like to connect to. And it's something I sincerely feel about what you have developed and, and the ethos that you put behind everything in this business and and in this community and and then the space itself and i think i think we are in a world where that is changing that's part of what the podcast is here to speed up a little bit right to have these conversations to sort of light the light bulb in people's minds as to what's possible and to get them thinking in a new way so that so that we together as a community as a collective can start to change that balance and and bring the new normal into play so that we can be more multidimensional, highly functional, highly integrated human beings. I feel the swing, even with COVID, I still feel the swing. I, I feel this, I was talking with, I go to a chiropractor who I love, not because I believe in 100% <laughs> in what we're doing, but I love him. And I hope he doesn't hear this and get mad at me, but I love him. He's 
he's smart. Mm. He thinks outside of the box. And we were talking this morning about how we both feel like there's a pendulum where people are either on the upswing and so interested in bettering themselves or they're so far in the other direction that we're sort of just like we are politically almost going in two separate directions. But that still means that let's call it 30% of the whole population is pumped to be bettering themselves. And that still leaves a lot of people who we can help. It leaves a lot of people who we can, I've been recently saying at the end of class, like, you know, have a great day. You've done your job here. Now go out and change the world. Like literally that's how I feel about it is that we can have this big effect and that if we can get people to feel empowered in their bodies, to be empowered in then going out and feeling it in their business or in their job or whatever it is, you know, people saying like, again, I, told, I said it earlier, like I got that job or fuck, like I, I raised mm. the money I needed to start my business. And thanking, thanking us for helping and being a part of that journey, then like if we can empower such a large percentage of the population, like that's another, to use the word dangerous, I don't know why I'm using it so much, but that's another, that's, that would be humongous. Could you imagine if we had 10,000 people in Colorado who were really committed to themselves from a holistic standpoint, not just a, I'm going to go for a run. Like we, it's a very active state, but I mean, from the holistic view, there would be a big change. That's a big, there would be a big ripple and the amount of children, the way that we would teach physical education in school could change the way that we taught, the way that children just move through their day at school. And yeah, I mean, we could have a huge ripple effect. So this to me, is what we need to be doing. Are me and you, are we doing it the perfect way? Of course not. But we're doing the best we can do right now. Failing forward. <laughs> and failing forward. Yeah. Yeah, failing forward. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> very. <laughs> oh my goodness, Matt. This has been such a wonderful pleasure and really one of the most heartwarming and inspiring conversations I've had in such a long time. So thank you so, so much for taking the time to come on here to share your story, your insights and your expertise. Thanks, Marie. Thanks for having me. It was great. It was also great to hear more about you and where you're coming from. And also nice to feel like we're on the same page about so much. So, uh, yeah yeah it's good to feel that camaraderie in in an environment that doesn't always feel so synergistic when you feel like a fish out of water most of the time yeah well i feel it with you so we're good you're also good we got two (laughs) and i would love to have you on again sometime soon because i feel like there's so much more that we can possibly unearth here and and this is just the tip of the iceberg for sure. Anytime. I love that. 
Thank you for tuning in with us today. You can find contact information and all references made during the show in the show notes. If you enjoyed the episode, don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, and spread the love by sharing with family and friends. If you want to learn more or would like additional support in your movement relationship, head to our website at evolna.com. Be gentle, be generous, and be good to yourself. And have a beautiful day.